Hello. What a wonderful congregation. Yeah, give yourselves a hand. God is so pleased. And if you know the Lord, you may or may not have thought about this. You probably know it, but I bet you haven't realized it. We will be together forever. Days coming, there's no goodbyes. We're together forever. Now, don't worry. We're changed. We're changed. We'll enjoy being together forever. But we'll be together forever. That, that just that thought blows me away. Forever. We've missed Ray Kaufman for two years. I think tomorrow is the anniversary of his death. Two years is a long time to us. Two years is nothing for him in heaven. A day is as a thousand years. A thousand years is as a day. And we will be with him. But for now, we have a mission. We're going to give ourselves to the mission. Introduction and review. We have completed Ephesians 1. Now, come on. Thank you. That's a place for some applause, right? Steve, what's it been? 12 years in Ephesians 1? Not quite that long. (laughs) June 11th, we started it. Oh, you're writing this down, Pauline. Oh, man. I'm going to be called to task now. So anyhow, we have completed Ephesians 1, and the most recent focus from that chapter is is intercession, the concept of intercession. We've been working our way through the the prayer of the Apostle Paul as he interceded for the Ephesians. We covered it extensively, and we're moving on from there. But by the way, we do not have to stop praying for our folks just because we're moving on to another topic. Thank you, Art. Actually, the application of our message today is a bit different, but it's going to involve yet another focus on prayer. So God has not released us yet from a focus on prayer, but a focus on intercession, the way we've been talking about it, we're moving on. But you don't have to. You don't have to stop praying for those people that God put on your heart. So next slide. Today's text is Ephesians 2. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. The title is Back to Basics. And Yvonne, if you'll come to read, and we'll stand. Honor God's word together. Yvonne will read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Right into the mic so that we can hear. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms and in in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show 
the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Thank you, Yvonne. That's a lot. That's our segment, but we're not going to cover it all today. It will break it down. So right now what I want you to do is nudge your neighbor and say, listen up, God has something to say to you today. Listen up. God has something to say to you today. You're not here by coincidence. You may think you chose to come here, but God drew you here. Okay, now you can return your attention to the front. So Paul just finished informing the Ephesians of all those lofty spiritual truths that we covered in chapter 1. The spiritual blessings we have in Christ. Amazing stuff we covered. Our position in Christ, who we are in Christ. And we said time and time again, you're so much more than you think you are. And God wants you to know that. And he wants you to begin living out of that, of who you are in him. Paul informed the Ephesians of who they were in Christ, their position in Christ, the spiritual blessings that were theirs. Then there was that prayer of intercession on their behalf. Paul was interceding that God would help them understand because we can't understand it with our natural mind. We need help from the Holy Spirit to understand it with our spirits through faith. Paul wanted the Ephesians to understand these lofty spiritual truths that God would grant them wisdom and revelation, reveal stuff to them that they couldn't otherwise know. I hope you're having that experience as we've been praying for each other. Wisdom and revelation, incredible hope, glorious eternal riches, incomparably great power that's available to us and actually dwells within us. All of this available to us, ours in Christ. So he's given them all this lofty stuff that probably had their heads spinning. It's new to them. They were Gentiles. They, weren't, they didn't have any religious background. It's probably had some of our heads spinning, and we're trying to wrap our, our minds around. That's a mistake, first of all. You can't understand it with your mind. But we're trying to wrap our heads around what exactly is this stuff in Ephesians. Now, that was chapter 1. For whatever reason, as we enter chapter 2, Paul feels the need to remind them of some very basic stuff out of the lofty spiritual realms, back to some very basic theological truth, fundamental, foundational truths of the gospel. This, this passage, if, you, if you're a preacher, this passage outlines very nicely. Verse 1 through 3, the sin of man, which we'll look at today. Verses 4 through 10, the salvation of God which we'll look at next week. The sin of man, the salvation of God. This chapter breaks down very nicely into that outline. However, a nice outline of the passage is not enough. We have to find application. We must find application of the passage. In other words, how can we take what we're going to hear today, what Paul wrote to the Ephesians back then, 
and apply it to our lives, CCF now. So the first segment, the first part of the outline this week, second part next week, here we go. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Back to the basics. Come down from the lofty realms for a moment. Back to the basics. You were dead because of your many sins. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires, the inclinations of our sinful nature, our flesh. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. So you've heard, I'm sure you've heard, that the word gospel translated means good news. Anybody hear that? You've heard that before? It means good news. And it does mean good news. However, the first tenet or the first plank of gospel truth is not good news. In fact, it's horrible news. You were dead. Because of your many sins, you used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, walking dead. In case you haven't noticed, from Scripture and from the world around you, and maybe your own personal life, mankind has a sin problem. No amens? Mankind is in trouble. Mankind has a sin problem issue. And because of the sin issue, mankind is separated from the life of God. Humans apart from God, humans who do not know Christ are walking dead, scripturally speaking. All they have is physical life. There's no spiritual life. There's no eternal life. There's no eternal life, which is the life of God. Mankind, apart from Christ, is absent the life of God. No life within them. You receive spiritual life, what the missing piece, you receive that when you're born again, when you come to Jesus. That's when you become alive. In Christ, he made us alive. We were dead. I once was lost, now I'm found. I once was dead, now I'm alive. Question for you. See if you've been paying attention for the last 27 years. Have we ever mentioned Genesis 3 in here? <laughs> A few times? Well then, if you've been with us, back then or recently, it always seems to come up somehow. And there's a reason for that. It's a pivotal chapter. It's a pivotal time period in human history. You know, if, you know, if you've heard us talk about Genesis 3, you know that's where the sin problem began. That's where sin came from. The origin of sin in the human race is found in Genesis 3. In that, as the world says outdated, no relevant book, the Bible. Except that it just explains everything in there that's going on today. 
In Genesis 3, due to sin, everything changed. Pivotal point in human history. Everything changed for the worse. Simply put, Adam and Eve, the original two human beings, Adam, then Eve created out of Adam by God. Adam and Eve willfully disobeyed God. Adam and Eve turned away from God. Adam and Eve went their own way. Adam and Eve separated themselves by choice from God. Mankind has been going their own way, separated from God ever since, to our own hurt, to our own demise. It says, by our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. We're born with a sinful nature from our original parents, from Genesis chapter 3, meaning our natural tendency is towards sin. The argument that's out there is, are human beings basically good or bad, is answered in Scripture. Very clear. And I'm not going to give you the answer. You can research it. We're born with a sinful nature, meaning our natural tendency is towards sin. We want to go our own way. We want to do our own thing. We want to live life apart from God. That's all of us. That's all of mankind, no exception It says, all of us used to live that way. How about some New Testament support for this? Everyone has sinned, Romans 3.23. If I forget to give the reference, remind me, because people who can't be here and are listening on podcast, they need to hear that reference so they don't know where we're we're coming from. You get to see it. So Romans 3.23. Everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Well, what's the standard? The standard is perfection. And if you have a problem with the standard, take it up with the one who set the standard. I'm just a messenger. None of us are good enough to get into heaven. Some folks are better than others, definitely. But none of us are good enough to get into heaven. Let me give you an illustration. I've heard this, and I love this illustration. If you lined the whole human race up on the beach, and you gave everyone a rock proportionate to their size, now the standard, the challenge, is to throw your rock across the ocean. Let's say from the Jersey Beach to Portugal. I think that's what's straight across from from Jersey. The stand, no? What is Oh, okay. I think Portugal is the, the, across from us. So the challenge is all of us are lined up on the beach, let's say in Atlantic City, and we're to throw our rock from there to Portugal, and that's the standard. That's the standard that must be met. Hit the other side. Some folks will obviously throw their rock further than others, right? But nobody can throw their rock all the way across. So nobody can meet the standard. Some of us are better than others, more good, if that's acceptable English, more good than others, but none of us are good enough to get into heaven. Therefore, everyone is disqualified. Every human being, since Adam and Eve sinned, is disqualified from heaven. The first plank, the first tenet of the gospel is horrible news. 
The human race is dead in their sin. Walking dead. The Bible says all have sinned. Everybody falls short of the standard. No one is good enough to gain eternal life. No one is good enough to get into heaven of your own merit. How about some further support of this thought? Romans 3, 19 through 18, but I just pulled out some highlights. All people are under the power of sin. As the scripture says, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good. Not a single one. A depiction of the human race apart from Christ, apart from God. Absolutely no hope. Lost and without hope in the world. You may say, wait a second, I seek God. This is a description of mankind, humans, apart from Christ. Before you or I or any of us came to Christ, this was us. This, this characterized our lives. Some more, some less, but all of us, this characterized our lives. All have turned away. All have sinned. None of us sought God before we came to Christ. And I'll explain that to you as we move on. This thought is found so many places in Scripture, too many to cover here. We could recite verse after verse, Old Testament and New Testament, to support this, this not, it's not a theory, this truth of Scripture. We're all under the power of sin apart from Christ. So we're going to continue to look at this and we're going to see some consequences of living in sin, living apart from Christ. The consequences of what Genesis 3 did to the human race. How it devastated the human race far more than we have any concept. Of how it corrupted the human race. How corrupted we are apart from Christ. John 14, 6. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Pay attention to the bold. No one, no one can come to the Father except through me. Acts 4.12 says, There's no other name under heaven by which man can be saved, by which man can gain life for his deadness, can gain relationship with God for his separation. There's no other way except through Jesus. There's no other name. It doesn't matter how good it seems or what religion it is. If it doesn't focus on Jesus and say he's the only way to the Father, it's false. It's error. There's no other name. There's no other way. No one can come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father who sent me draws them to me to try and give us some understanding. No one can come to the Father except through Jesus. No one can come to, the, to Jesus unless the Father draws him. So what exactly is that saying? First of all, don't be misled here. The point here is not that God the Father will only draw certain ones to Jesus. That's a mistake. Salvation is not an exclusive club. Eternal life is not an exclusive club. It's all-inclusive. 
It's available to every human being. But what exactly is being said here? No one can come to the Father except through Jesus. Well, no one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. Earlier in the gospel, it says that anyone who does come will be saved. 2 Peter 3.9 says God's not willing that any should perish. 1 Timothy 2.4 said God desires all people to come to a knowledge of truth and be saved. God is no respecter of persons. So what exactly is this? What's the point here? And here's the point here. No one comes, no one can come to Jesus of their own accord. Are you following me? Are you staying with me? No one comes, no one can come to Jesus of their own accord. The human race has been so badly damaged by sin, we can't even come to be saved. That's how dependent we are upon God and upon Jesus. Our sin prevents us even from coming to Jesus, even though that's where our salvation is. We won't come of our own accord. We can't. God must draw us to Jesus. God must initiate the salvation process because we never would. We're so badly damaged by sin, we never would. Even if we could see that there was salvation, we would still go our own way. That's kind of ridiculous, isn't it? You can see where the safety is, but you won't go there. That's what sin has done to us. That's what sin has done to the human race. We're in bondage to sin apart from Christ. God must draw us. Hear me, if you're, if you're here and you have come to Christ, be thankful and praise God because you could not have done that except he drew you. Do not take your salvation for lightly. Do not take your salvation lightly, for God went to great extent to save you. First thing he had to do was draw you to Jesus, and you resisted with everything you had for a while. He never gave up. You did choose to accept Jesus. There's some credit. The apostles said to Jesus, after hearing him talk about these kind of things, they said, well, man, what, what can we do to be saved? And he said, you got one thing to do, and that's believe on me. Receive me. So we did do that. We chose to accept Jesus, but that choice was a response to God the Father drawing us. We didn't choose to come to him. God drew us to him, and thank God, we chose to receive him as our Savior. So I have a question for you. Do you love God? Do you love Jesus? Well, you know, we love him because he first loved us. 1 John 4, 19. You love him because he first loved you. You did not choose to love him. He chose to love you and you responded to his love. And now you love him. Our sin prevented us even from loving him, from loving our Savior. 
You could not love him. Your sin prevented you from loving him. But his love came to you. His love came to you first. He had to love us first. Then we could love him. In our sin, we could not initiate love for God. Even if we heard how great, glorious, kind, merciful, forgiving he was, we couldn't choose to love him apart from his help. Our sin prevented us. Adam and Eve, back to Genesis prior to chapter 3. Adam and Eve enjoyed a relationship with God like no other human beings. They knew the incredible love of God for them intimately. They knew him intimately. But here's the question. What was the first thing Adam and Eve did after they sinned? They knew this God intimately. They loved this God with all their hearts. And then they sinned and then they hid, them, then they hid themselves from him. They did not want anything to do with him. That's what sin did to the human race. That's what sin does to us. What was the first thing God did after Adam and Eve sinned? He went looking for them. They sinned. They ran away. They hid themselves from God. He went after them, and he found them, and he cared for their needs, and he drew them back to himself. That's what the God of love does for human beings in bondage to sin. Are you with me? One thing further to mention before we leave this thought, this thought of the devastating effects of sin on mankind. And this next idea, this next truth we're going to look at will lead to the application. Ephesians 2.2. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Those who are resisting God, those who are rejecting Christ, the devil, the This evil spirit is at work in their lives. It doesn't mean they're possessed, but it means he's at work in their lives, keeping them from God. So Paul mentions another player in this sin scenario. He's a bad actor. He's the devil. He's Satan, Lucifer, some other names that refer to him, all bad, all negative. So without reading Genesis 3 right now together, but I do encourage you to do so on your own, I want you to know that Satan was there too. Satan was in that pivotal chapter. Satan was in the garden. Satan was instrumental in tempting and leading Adam and Eve into sin. He came to them in the form of a serpent, a snake. He deceived them, and unfortunately, he was successful. They listened to him. It's not all on him. He'll get his just due. But they listened to him. Instead of obeying God, they listened to him. They believed his deception and they followed him into sin. He was successful. They turned away from God to follow him. And mankind, apart from Christ, has been following him ever since. 
Look at the world around you. He is the spirit that is at work presently. Spirits don't die. Angels don't die. Demons don't die. God never dies. Satan never dies. He was there in Genesis 3, active there in Genesis 3. He's active in our world today. He's still involved in man's sin problem. He's still tempting, deceiving, leading humans into sin. That's how he controls us. That's how he keeps us in bondage, through sin. His aim is to keep sinful human beings blinded to the truth of the gospel. His aim is to keep sinful human beings from ever coming to Christ and being saved. He wants to populate the lake of fire because that's where he will be. And his time, by the way, is growing short and he's ramping up his game. Second Corinthians 4.4, 4, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. If you refuse to believe in Christ, to receive him, as, receive him as your Savior, if you continue to reject him, you go deeper and deeper into bondage to Satan and sin. Already in bondage, but the longer you reject Christ, the deeper in bondage you go, the more hold he has on you, the more control he has over you. And you can get to a place where you can't come back to God. You never get yourself in a place where God's love can't reach you. But you will get yourself into a place where you cannot turn to him. You want an example in scripture? It's Pharaoh. The Egyptian Pharaoh in the days of Moses and the Exodus. A second example would be Judas who betrayed Jesus. So, along with mentioning that Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers so they cannot understand, we got the sin problem, we got Satan, what's that word, exacerbating that problem or emphasizing that problem. So we got a sin problem to begin with because of him. And now he's just fueling that sin problem. Along with saying that he's, bl- he's blinded them, and there's, there's too many verses to go into, but I just want to tell you, 2 Corinthians, chapter three, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul mentions six times a veil. Now get this picture, get this truth. There is a veil that's placed over the hearts and the minds of unbelievers. Satan, through sin, blinds unbelievers by placing a veil where they cannot see clearly over their minds And their hearts keeps them from receiving Christ, keeps them from understanding the gospel. It's so clear to you now. It wasn't always, but it's so clear to you now. The gospel is so clear. And then when you tell somebody that doesn't know Christ, you think it should be so clear to them. And you're puzzled when they're like, they just don't get it. They don't get it because there's a blind placed over their eyes and a veil over their mind and their heart. They can't understand. Their sin is keeping them from understanding. Your sin kept you from understanding until a certain point in your life when it was removed, which is how we're going to end. And by the way, next week's sermon is the opposite of this bad news. I almost almost entitled this sermon Bad News and Good News. The bad news this week, the good news next week. This week, the sin of man. Next week, the salvation of God. 
that deals with the sin issue of man completely. So Paul doesn't say a whole lot in our Ephesians text about this blind and about this veil that's found in in Corinthians. So we're not going to go much deeper into it today either. This is not a sermon on Satan, but what we have said fits our context. It plays into what God wants to address with us today. So for now, know this. Satan was around and instrumental at the origin of sin in the human race. Satan is around, he's active, and he's operating in the world today. He's instrumental in stirring up sin and trouble in the human race. Let's move to a conclusion and our application. Very interesting verse, 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. We did a mini-series on this, the weapons of our warfare, back during COVID, when we realized that COVID was a spiritual attack on the world. We are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning, to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. Strongholds of human reasoning, false holds of uh, false, or strongholds of false arguments, philosophies, ideologies, the isms, socialism, communism, atheism. All those strongholds of human reasoning and false arguments that keep people from embracing Christ and Christianity. Satan is not mentioned per se in this passage on spiritual warfare. However, are you with me? A strong case can be made that these strongholds of human reasoning, these false arguments, these proud obstacles are part of the veil that's placed over the minds and hearts of unbelievers. It's part of the blind with which Satan keeps them from understanding spiritual truth. They are tools that are used by Satan to blind and veil unbelievers to the gospel, to the truth of Jesus, to his love for us, to his salvation. These are the things that keep us from that. These are the things that are keeping your unbelieving loved ones, friends, and neighbors from coming to Christ. They keep people from knowing God. So very important to know. For God to draw unbelievers to Jesus. Remember going way back to the beginning. No one comes unto the Father except through me. Nobody comes unto me unless the Father first draws him. In order for God to draw unbelievers to Jesus, in order for them to understand the good news of the gospel, in order for them to respond and receive Jesus as their Savior and Lord, these strongholds must be torn down. The blindness must be lifted. The veil must be removed. Is that making any sense to you guys? And God has given that role to the church. Ah, ouch, what? No. I knew we were going to get pulled into this somehow. God has given that role, that assignment, that mission to the church to set the captive free, to remove the veil. We're called to overcome Satan on their behalf. We're called to overcome their sin problem on their behalf. Somebody did it for you. 
We're called to set the captives free. Somebody was instrumental by God to set you free. Luke 10, 16 through 18. He said to the disciples, Jesus speaking, anyone who accepts your message is also accepting me. Anyone who rejects you is rejecting me. So if you're out there telling people about Jesus and they mock you and they ridicule you, why are you worried? They're not mocking you. They're not ridiculing you. It's directed towards him. You just seemed, unfortunately, to be the middleman. So he sent them out to tell people about him. He sent them out with this mission. Tell others about me. Tell others about the salvation that's in my, in my name. And when the 72 disciples returned, they joyfully reported to the Lord, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. Yes, he told them. Jesus wasn't surprised. Yes, he told them, because I gave you my authority and I gave you my power. And Satan can't stand against that. Now, you know this is coming. He gave you his authority. He gave you his power. His power, And Satan can't stand against you. He just deceives us into thinking he can. And then intimidating us. He said, I know. I saw Satan fall like lightning, fall from heaven like lightning. In other words, while you were out there ministering, 72 of them, wherever they went to all these towns and villages, as they were out there ministering, Satan's kingdom was crumbling. And people were coming to know Jesus. Out of the kingdom of darkness, out of their sin, into the kingdom of light, into Christ's salvation, so full and so free. So the setting here is Jesus sent out his disciples to preach salvation, to heal sick, to deliver folks, to set the captives free from their bondage to sin and Satan, who's behind it all. Now, don't become demon conscious and think that there's a demon everywhere putting pressure on you. There are sometimes. But basically how Satan operates is he starts a false doctrine, a false argument, a philosophy, an ideology, he sets that in place. And then he begins to influence a people group through things like media and academia and government. And so it's not that there's a demon attached to every person influencing them, but he brings them under the influence of these false arguments and these pretensions that Paul said become strongholds in our thinking and keep us from knowing Christ. And that's what has to be torn down. He sent them out to lift the blindness and to remove the veil. And the response was awesome. Satan had to set the captives free under the powerful name of Jesus through his followers. So the next slide is the main point. God works through believers. He works through the church to bring lost souls to himself. To set them free from bondage to sin and to Satan. And it's through various means. But I want to focus on one today, primarily one, and that's prayer. That's why the text said, new chapter, 
new thought, same application. So for roughly five weeks, we've been interceding for one another. We've been keeping it in-house pretty much. We've been interceding for one another that God will enlighten the eyes of our understanding to know and experience him and who we are in Christ and the spiritual blessings we have and all that lofty stuff. We've been praying for one another to come into that. And now God's saying you had five weeks. That was enough time. I got a different assignment for you, but it's still prayer. This week, prayer but with a different focus. Pull out your insert. But pastor, I thought we were done with that insert. Nope. There it is. In your bulletin, another insert. And the the application is this. Ask God. Make sure you're paying attention. Ask God to give you a name or names of someone who does not yet know him for whom you will pray regularly this coming week, just as you have been in-house for others in the church. Now you're praying for someone who doesn't know the Lord or someones. Could be in your own family, neighborhood, workplace. Who knows? God knows. He knows who he wants you to pray for. He knows who he wants to draw to Jesus. And he needs you to be praying for him. Did you hear that? He knows who he wants to use you to draw draw them to Jesus. And you have to be praying for him. Here's how you pray. Pray regularly this week. Ask God to draw them to Jesus. Ask God to remove the veil. Lift the blind. That's keeping them from coming to Jesus. They can't do it on their own. You couldn't do it on your own. Somebody had to come to your aid. Deb and I, we didn't know anything about Christianity. And then we finally got saved. And we thought, we didn't know anything about Christianity. And all of a sudden, we find out she has an aunt and uncle who were Christians And when we told them we became saved, they said, we've been praying for you since the day you got married. Which would have been, mm, well, three years, I guess. Two or three years. And then we got into this church in Elizabethtown. And we walked into this Sunday school class on Sunday morning. What's wrong, Dev? Oh, it's part of your prayer. Okay. So I go ahead. We walked into this church in Sunday school and the, pa- the, the teacher introduced us because I knew him. And he said, this is Hub and Deb Smith. And they said, we've been praying for you guys. I don't know if I can back this statement up scripturally. But I don't think anybody can come to Christ if somebody's not praying for them. You might be able to argue that. So just as with our intercession, in-house intercession, don't just say a prayer for them Monday morning. Pray regularly for them. This is a serious issue. There's a strong power holding them, whatever it is. And the strongholds are different, and the veil is different for each person. But it's keeping them from coming to Christ. And God's going to want you to pray that away using these weapons of our warfare. Demolish those strongholds, Lord. Demolish that. Take it down. Remove that veil, lift that blind so they can be drawn to Jesus because God is drawing them. It's not an exclusive club. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus and this isn't even making any sense to you, would you please talk to me before we leave? Other than that, we'll have congregation stand. Sonny, bring the band forward. 
My wife is going to come and pray. I already stole some of her thunder, unfortunately. But she has a lot. Good. Dad, wait till everybody's in position and listening. Don't, don't pray over the distractions. Wait till they're ready. what Hub said, um, God was drawing both of us separately. Unbeknownst to me, Hub was being drawn. Unbeknownst to him, I was being drawn. I would pray every night that God would show me if there was more to life than what I was living. And, and you know, many people know our testimony, but there's some that here that don't. I just want to say I married my bad boy. And if you think that he doesn't have a testimony, you need to talk to him. We all have a testimony here. <laughs> That have been saved. Did he say yes? He's a bad boy. <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> I know. So, <laughs> so I just want to encourage you. Um, if God's drawing you, listen to that voice. Listen to hear what He has to say to you. Um, God loves you more than any person on this earth could ever love you. That includes your mother, your grandmother, your father, your children. So I'm thankful that I'm alive. Is everyone else here thankful they are alive in Christ and dead to sin? So let's pray. And this might get a little emotional because many of us have prodigals that we want God to remove the veil and to open their hearts. And they're doing things that they shouldn't be doing. And God wants to remove them. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you that we are saved out of the fire that we are alive in Jesus Christ, but you have called us to do things here. We're not in heaven like Ray, Father, and we, we praise you that Ray is there, and we look forward to seeing him. But, Father, we're here with a purpose yet. Until you call us home, we need to look for that purpose. So I pray that you remind us this week to pray for those on our list that we would look around us and let God place on our hearts those that need you. And, Father, use us as the instrument, Father, to draw them to you. Father, I pray for myself, my family, my boys, my daughter. Father, I just pray for the prodigals that have been here and have left and are out there in the world. Father, I pray that they're not so far gone that they, you can't reach them, that they can't reach you. Father, I pray that they reach out to you even today. Know that they're living in sin, knowing that they're living in the world. And they need more. They need more than what the world has to offer. And that world is Jesus. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. Amen.